turned it on this time. Is that right? Everyone hear me okay? Awesome. So, uh, yeah, if you can try and listen to more than 5% of what I say this morning, <laughs> that would be helpful. <clears throat> I've got a slightly froggy throat, for this, so please excuse me, I'll be drinking a little bit. So, uh, good morning, welcome to Sunday, which is uh, what I like to say. If you don't know me, my name's Dale, and I am one of the elders here at New Life Community Church, which is one church that meets in multiple locations. Now, last week was quite a long message, um, and it was also really, really hot and stuffy in here. The good news is, it's not hot and stuffy in here this week. Oh, oh, it took a minute. As I said last week, we're taking a short break from our current preaching series in Hebrews, and instead we're going to deliver a little two-part mini-series called Honouring God and His Church. Last week was part one, this is part two. The reason we're doing that is because as an eldership team, we want to share the fruit of our investigation into teaching in the local church and all the connected areas that God's called us to look at along the way. And if you missed last week's message, um, you, can, you can get that online and you can also, you'll be able to pick this one up online next week as well. You'll be able to go on Spotify and find those. I want to start this morning by doing a little recap just in case you weren't here last week, of some of the key things we looked at. Last week we looked at the pattern of team that flows from God, who is one God in three persons, into man and woman who are made in his likeness and in his image, and then into the household of God, which is the church family. And we understood what godly headship, authority, and submission looks like within the church family, with husbands, fathers, and elders popping up a kind of umbrella of covering over the families that God has given them. And their job is to equip and release and cause to flourish those families that God has given them. And then finally, we observe the principle that godly authority can be given. And it can be invested in others for the benefit of the church and to the glory of God. And those things are the foundations that we are going to build on today. In today's message, we're going to look at the structure of New Life Community Church. We're going to address the question of who can teach in the local church. And we're going to look at character and gifting. So, point one, let's look at the structure of NLCC. So why are we looking at the structure? That's the first thing. And the answer is because New Life Community Church is one church now that meets in multiple locations. We've got sites both here in Fordingbridge and over in the town of Wimborne. And as you know, we're continuing to explore what God is doing over in the village of Downton. And that is incredibly exciting. But it has led us to prayerfully consider before God what structure or framework would best enable us to govern and support our beautiful church family? And as an eldership uh, team, we quickly decided we didn't want to have individual elders being solely responsible for individual sites because we recognise that as a team, it is our responsibility to oversee and care for the whole church family. Does that make sense? 
Alongside that, our heart was to implement a model that would enable the whole church family to flourish, but still allow each site to reflect and express the culture and the identity of the community that it's in. So in other words, we wanted a model that allowed NLCC Wimborne and Fordingbridge to be one church family, governed by the same eldership team, sharing the same vision and values, culture and DNA, but we wanted to allow for the fact that it might look a little bit different across each site. We wanted to allow for the fact that things might get outworked slightly differently. And to do these things, we felt we needed to appoint people into some very specific roles. We needed some people who'd serve the church by being responsible for key areas of ministry across all of our sites. And we also needed some people to be responsible for operations in an individual site. And now in one sense, we could have just said as elders, that's okay, we'll take on that role, we'll do that. But in exploring what it is that elders do, or elders exclusively do, we concluded we didn't need to do that. It didn't need to be the elders. Remember the three ways we talked about, that the Bible talks about elders, overseers, elders, and shepherds. Now these roles, the new roles that we're looking to appoint people into, they're not overseeing roles. They don't have a governing responsibility over the whole church family. They're not elder roles because they're not about guarding right doctrine and ensuring it's faithfully imparted to the church. And they're not shepherding roles because... Sorry, they're not shepherding roles because they're not about guiding and guarding the church family, causing us to follow in Jesus' footsteps and defending the church family from those who would attack it. These are supporting roles. They're designed to serve the church family and to uh, enable and implement and outwork the direction of the elders, not to do that role themselves. So even though these roles that we're talking about carry a significant amount of responsibility, they don't need to be done by the elders. And as elders, that gives us a fantastic opportunity to identify and to enable and release good godly men and women who have gifting and skills into these roles. And it enables us to recognise them and to give thanks to God for them. So we'd landed on a structure that we thought, this is good. This is how we are going to move forward and support New Life Community Church. But another stop on this grand tour of scripture and theology was to look at the role of deacons. And that led us to ask the next important question. Is there a biblical model for deacons? Does the Bible have anything to say about what they do and who can be one? Unsurprisingly, the answer is yes, it does. So let's have a look at what the Bible says. We see that there are three distinct groups of people referred to in Scripture. You have the saints, you have overseers, and you have deacons. And the saints are the body of believers, the individuals who make up the church family. The overseers are the elders, we've already said that, who have governing authority over the church family. 
who are the deacons? What does that term even mean? Well, the word deacon is the English version of the Greek word diakonos, which means servant. And the New Testament talks about deaconing or serving a lot. To help us understand what the term deacon means, I think it will be helpful to look at four ways that deaconing is talked about in Scripture. We're going to look at deaconing as a general activity of the church, deaconing as a spiritual gift, deaconing as a specific ministry, and then as an office. Is everybody with me so far? Okay. Deaconing as a general activity of the church then. According to the pattern we see in Scripture, all saints at all times and in all places are called to deacon or serve the church family. So me and you, whenever we're in the church family, we should be serving or deaconing one another. We're all called to be servants of Jesus and of our brothers and sisters. And this isn't an add-on to the Christian faith. It is central to it. Jesus, our ultimate example, models it. In Matthew 20, 28, it says, The Son of Man came not to be served, that's that same root word for deacon, but to serve, to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Therefore, if Jesus does it, in trying to be like him, we should do the same. We shouldn't look to be served, but to serve others, as we strive to model and outwork that servant heart of Jesus in all our activities and our attitudes and our behaviours. So Jesus does it, deaconing as a spiritual gift. Romans 12, 6-7. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, deaconing, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching. One of the spiritual gifts listed in this passage is the gift of service or deaconing. And it's sandwiched between prophecy and teaching. So it's not some sort of lesser spiritual gift, but a specific spiritual gift given by Jesus to his church for the purpose of building it up. With this in mind, it makes sense that those who are given this gift of deaconing and are recognised as embodying the servant heart of Jesus would be given greater measures of responsibility in line with their other giftings, the other things God's called them to. Next, we'll look at deacon as a ministry. The Bible also speaks of deaconing as sometimes connected to a specific area of ministry. For example, in Acts 6, we have the apostles. They set aside seven godly men of good character to serve as deacons, to to deacon or wait tables in their place. And they were given that task to deacon the daily distribution of food. And this was to release the apostles to get on with what they felt their specific deaconing or serving role was, which was to devote themselves to prayer and to the word. Acts 6.4, but 
the apostles say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the deaconing or the ministry of the word. So deaconing as an office then. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7 describes the qualifications of the office of an overseer. And remember, overseer's elder. And immediately following that, that passage prescribes a similar, not the same, but a similar list of qualifications for the office of deacon. We're just going to look at that in verses 8 to 10. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. So according to this passage, deacons are to be model saints. They're to be tested by being observed in operation in their service of the church, and then, then they can serve in the office of deacon. And we see this principle play out in Acts 6, where the character and gifting of the seven godly men is recognised before they're set apart by the apostles. You see that? Acts 6.3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. They're already recognising that the men who they are going to appoint are of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom. So it's helpful at this point to discuss the question, what does a deacon actually do? We can see from Acts 6 that the seven's role was to release the apostles, to release them, to actually give themselves to the word and to prayer. And whilst this doesn't directly translate to elders uh, and deacons, it is a principle that I think we can carry over very safely. So the role of a deacon then is to release the elders to do their job. And in contrast to the qualifications for elders, deacons are not required to be able to teach. That's a spiritual gift that is necessary for guarding right doctrine, and that makes it a, an office that lines with eldership. So if, you, if, if you're talking about elders, those guys need to teach. Deacons, they don't need to teach. Doesn't, doesn't stop them from teaching, but in order to do the role of a deacon, you don't need to teach. Okay, so our conclusion as an eldership team is that we should recognise the biblical office of deacon. Now with that, what we understand is that that term or that word deacon is a pretty loaded historical church term. There have been, and I think there probably still are churches, that have deacons with the sorts of responsibility that we probably don't see in scripture. And so we're happy to use other terms uh, to describe the deacon-type roles within our framework. We're not necessarily going to refer to them as deacons. You may have received in your email inbox a copy of our um, multi-site leadership framework and roles booklet. Um, if you have, and you've had a look at that, um, I'm going to unpack some of that now. If you haven't, um, you should be able to unpack that at any point. Joe, I think we're going to get some paper copies printed as well, aren't we? Imminently. Imminently. <laughs> so they will be available. 
Okay. So in terms of these roles that we are looking to appoint, the first one I want to look at is the role of coordinator. These are deacon-like roles, and the first one is coordinator. And I'm going to give you the definition that's in the handbook, and then I'll unpack it a little bit. <clears throat> so a coordinator is given leadership responsibility from the elders to manage a team that serves across multiple sites in line with the vision, values, culture, and theology of NLCC. So these are people who will serve the church by being responsible for key areas of ministry that stretch across all of our sites. Remember I said these are the two groups of people we wanted to see in roles. And in that sense, they'll help to reflect the fact that we are one church family. And they'll do that in areas like kids' work, worship, and preaching. The next deacon role is the role of site lead. Site leads are given leadership authority from the elders to manage, coordinate, and evaluate individual site activity in line with the vision, values, culture, and theology of NLCC. Site leads, then, are going to be people who serve the church by being responsible for some of the operations in an individual site. So you'll have a site lead for Fordingbridge, and you'll have a site lead for Wimborne. But you will have coordinators across all of our sites. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes. So, I want you to remember our principle that authority can be given because that is the basis for us putting people into these roles. It's true of every role within church life at NRCC. God gives authority to the elders who operate under his covering and then the elders give authority to others who operate under their covering. But this is particularly true of these key roles, the roles of coordinator and site lead. They're roles that are going to be open to both men and women who embody the servant heart of Jesus, who have the gift of serving and who are recognised by the elders for their conduct, their gifting and their ability. Part of their role is going to be to operate with a measure of this given or delegated authority from the elders in order to release the elders to perform their roles of guarding, guiding and governing the church. We also have trustees. Trustees are, the appointed, uh, are appointed by the elders in accordance with UK law for registered charities to be responsible for the legal affairs of that registered charity that is New Life Community Church. Again, trustees are godly men and women that carry the eldership team's heart for God's church and whose character and gifting are recognised as a blessing for the legal activities of the church. And I do want to highlight here that it's NLCC's policy that the majority of appointed trustees are also elders. And this is an outworking of our theological conviction that it's the elders who carry the primary responsibility before God for the welfare of the church family, including the area of financial stewardship and legal compliance. So this is one of the ways, having a majority of eldership in the trustees, that we outwork our headship responsibility. We pop open that umbrella of covering over the church. 
And last but not least, in terms of our framework, we have site teams. These will be more familiar to us. <clears throat> these are our locally based teams that help serve the practical needs of a Sunday gathering at an individual site. So we're talking about uh, set up and pack down. We're talking about welcome teams, those kind of things. The essential activities <clears throat> that facilitate and bless our time together on Sunday mornings. Okay, there is in the diagram, a handy, uh, in the booklet, a handy little diagram. Um, it's really just there to illustrate how the different roles are going to relate to one another. But when you get time to have a look at that, you will also catch something of our heart as an eldership team to be diligent in our preparation for what we feel God is stirring our hearts to in the future. You'll see in faith that we've highlighted Downton alongside Wimborne and Fordingbridge as another site of New Life Community Church. And you'll also see that we've added another site. It says additional site. That is something that we feel God is laying on our heart to prepare for. It's not something, I want to stress this, it's not something we're driving for, it's not something we're trying to manufacture, but it is something we feel stirred by God to diligently prepare for. Is that exciting? Yes. Yeah. So let me ask you to do this. I know that was a huge amount of information. Please, let's keep praying together. Let's keep seeking God's direction and voice together. And let's keep honouring him by serving faithfully in the church family he's called us to together. Amen? As I say, if you have any questions about any of these things, uh, I'll give you some information about how you can grab some time with the elders at the end. Okay. The question of who can teach in the local church. Let's look at that. As I said last week, over the last couple of years, um, we've noticed a number of good godly leaders whom we love and respect arriving at some very different conclusions and practices in, than us in terms of who can teach in the local church. And in prayerful consideration of these things, we felt stirred by God as an eldership team to re-examine and investigate the role of teaching ourselves. At NLCC, we have a high view of eldership and their unique accountability before God to protect and enable the church family to flourish. As I said earlier, one of the primary qualifications for an elder is that they must be able to teach. We see that in the list of qualifications found in both 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1. Now, of course, teaching isn't just for Sunday mornings. And it doesn't just occur by delivering a message. But in our context, Sunday is one of the primary windows that we as elders have to faithfully impart God's trustworthy word as taught. In other words, that's the window that we have to directly instruct the church in right doctrine through our teaching. So at NLCC, we would expect to see the elders carry out the majority of the teaching then, when the church family is gathered together. Now, the majority clearly doesn't mean all. 
So what does that mean for the times when the elders are not teaching? Who else should get to teach to the gathered church? Currently, we have a pool of godly men who we're looking to invest in and develop as leaders. And we're doing that in faith that God might call some of them to be elders themselves one day. And part of their training then is to exercise the gift of teaching that God has given them. And we use some Sundays for that purpose. And even then, we cover them as elders by journeying with them in their preparation. So that when they deliver a preach, it's in agreement with right doctrine and done directly under the authority of the elders. However, the fact remains that other churches are making other decisions that lead to other practices. And whilst we won't be changing our practice based on what our neighbours are doing, our practice most certainly will reflect what we're convinced and convicted that the Bible teaches. As I said last week, looking at this one topic has led us to revisit and explore many, many other topics. I'm highlighting this because we want you to know that we have laboured over this question. We've taken it very seriously. We've invested a significant amount of time and energy into exploring teaching and the areas of scripture that are connected to it. Our conclusions on this subject represent many months of study, robust conversation, prayerful consideration and dialogue with people who have strong convictions and actually biblical arguments for a range of positions and practices. And with that in mind, it's my privilege then to share and unpack our position. One of the key things we wanted to know is what does the Bible tell us about teaching? Number one, it's a spiritual gift given to individuals. Paul calls the local church in 1 Corinthians 14 to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. These are gifts given specifically by the Holy Spirit to individuals for the common good of the local church family. And even though we should desire these gifts, it's, it's clear that not everyone will receive the same gift. It's the Holy Spirit who gives out his gifts as he determines. And that continues that Genesis flow of unity through diversity, with everyone bringing something individually of worth for the good of the whole family. Paul tells us in Romans 12 that teaching is one of those gifts that is distributed by the Holy Spirit. It's something that can be earnestly desired and it's something that we can recognise in others. The Greek word that Paul uses is didasko. It means someone who is able to deliver or impart information in a way that people understand. But there's also another type of teaching that's noted in Romans 12, and it comes from the Greek word didaskalia, which means to teach doctrine. So doctrine is those types of teaching and truths that are foundational from scripture. They undergird uh, our, our theology and our practice, and they shape each of our individual walks with Jesus. They're the building blocks of faith that need to be preserved and protected and imparted. And Paul puts these two words right next to each other in Romans 12, verse 7. 
When he's talking about the spiritual gift of teaching, he said, if it is teaching, then teach. Didasco comes first, then didascalia. Meaning if someone has the gift to unpack information in a way that helps people understand, then they should be teaching doctrine. If you can teach, teach doctrine. It's also important to note that Paul seems to be addressing the whole church at this point, men and women. And this gift, along with the others listed in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, are spiritual gifts, therefore, available to both men and women for the common good and the building up of the church. Point two, it's an individual given as a gift to the church. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that the ascended Jesus gave specific individuals and still does today as gifts to the local church. These individuals are there to help the church by equipping the saints for the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ and moving the church forward into greater maturity. The individuals given to us are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. And it's our opinion that what sets these individuals apart as unique is that not only are they recognised for operating in a particular spiritual gift, but embedded in them is a heart to serve and equip the local church for mission and ministry. So we have the gift of teaching and we have individuals who are teachers. And if we follow this flow of thought from scripture, in terms of who we should see teaching in the church, it does seem that both men and women can be gifted to teach and to equip and build up the church. And more than that, those who have received the gift of teaching are to teach doctrine, the key theological truths from scripture. However, there are some texts in the Bible that seem to indicate limits on who can teach. And I'm going to briefly explain how we've landed on those texts. As elders, teachers and preachers ourselves, whenever we look to interpret and apply the Bible, we try to identify two key things. Universal principles and cultural practices. Universal principles are the things in scripture that stand for all time. They apply to all people and they apply in all places. Romans 10.9 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confessing that anyone other than Jesus is Lord will not result in your salvation, no matter who you are, where you are, or when you are, right? Similarly, there will never be a moment when confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in his resurrection will not result in your salvation, no matter who you are, where you are, or when you are. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. That is a universal principle because it is true, thank God, it is true no matter who you are, where you are, or when you are. Cultural practices, on the other hand, can apply to individual people 
or groups of people at certain times and only in certain places sometimes. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites were told by God to smear the blood of a lamb on their doorposts so that God's judgment would pass over his people. This was to be commemorated in a very specific meal called the Passover with lots of instructions that go with it. For us, this is an example of a cultural practice because it applied to the Israelites or Jews alone until the time that Jesus came. And that is why as Christians, we don't paint our doorposts with blood and we don't, we don't take that specific Passover meal with all of its accompaniments and all of its instructions. But even then, we look to see a universal principle that we can apply, right? In this case, we see that when we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we are putting our trust in Jesus, who is our Passover lamb. It's because of his blood that the judgment of God passes over us and therefore we are saved. And we commemorate this wonderful truth in the communion meal that Jesus instructed us to take in remembrance of him. That is a timeless principle. So when it comes to difficult and contested passages of scripture, like 1 Timothy 2.12, which says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man, which seems to prevent women from teaching, it's incredibly important that we understand what is a cultural practice and only applies to a specific context in a specific time and what is a universal principle that applies in all contexts at all times. In addition to this, we never look at one scripture on its own in isolation. We always interpret scripture with scripture. In other words, when we need to look at a, pa we need to look at a passage not only in its local context, the chapter and the book that it occurs in, but in light of the whole of scripture, the big picture of God's story outworked through the whole of the Bible. And we have drawn on these tools and applied them to 1 Timothy 2, where we find that the wider biblical principles of headship, covering, authority and submission that we see in the order of creation are key in understanding the situation. Something's gone wrong in the church that the Apostle Paul is addressing in 1 Timothy 2. And we believe that in the context, women have, like Eve in the Garden of Eden, stepped out from under that umbrella covering that God provides through that headship responsibility, through the uh, husbands and fathers and elders, because they are operating in a way that does not joyfully submit to the authority and accountability that God has invested in those roles. And that is very bad. This is the reason that the Apostle Paul has to step in to restore God's order so that the men and women in the church family can once again operate as team in the way God called very good in the beginning. Therefore, Paul's prohibition on teaching applies to those people in that context at that time. And in that sense, it reflects a cultural 
practice. So as with my previous example then, is there a universal principle to be found here anyway? Well, yes, actually. Whenever we see someone within church trying to operate outside of the covering and accountability that God's given us through the principles of headship, authority and submission, we know then that's very bad. And we also know that correction needs to be brought in order to restore people to operate in the team that God calls very good. So as elders, we've looked at this challenging text and others like it, and we've understood how we should apply it. But in one sense, we're still dealing with a negative. It's as if Paul's saying, when you do church, don't do it like this. And part of our job as elders is to try and understand and apply what it should look like when it's done right. Therefore, through the redeeming work of Jesus and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, where headship, authority and submission are being worked out well, here's what we believe the Bible says church should look like. We biblically believe we would hope to see elders overseeing and primarily teaching as those uniquely accountable to God. We would hope to see deacons recognised and given a measure of delegated authority by the elders to serve in key roles across the church family. We would hope to see spiritual gifts exercised across the church family with those who have those giftings. And we'd look to see those people being encouraged and given the opportunity to use those gifts under the covering and the authority of the eldership. And this includes the gift of teaching. So with that in mind, as elders, we see no reason that would prevent both men and women who have demonstrated right character and gifting from delivering teaching to the local gathered church. And we would see that being done under the authority of the eldership team. And this is where we've landed as a team. This is a new theological position for us. And it's one we hope to honour God with as those who are responsible before God for guarding right doctrine and taking care of this church family. And so as a rightful response, we'll look to gather and equip a preaching team of both men and women of good character and gifting that will serve the church family moving forward. And we're excited to see what God does as we seek to honour him. So let me finish on character and gifting. At NLCC, we have a high view of biblical character and gifting. These are the key traits that tie together any and all areas of service in the church family. Whether we're talking about elders, trustees, coordinators, site leads or preachers and teachers, the trump card is always character. That's not because we're not interested in gifting. We praise God for the gifts that he's given to his church, whether that's the blessing of individuals or spiritual gifts. The reason character is so important is because a person might have all the giftings under the sun. But if they're not tempered and administered through a godly character, then they're of no use to anyone. And in fact, they can lead to misuse of both the gifting and the role and responsibility that can accompany it. 
Whereas a person who has a good godly character can always receive the addition of the blessing of other spiritual gifts given to them for the things that God calls them to do. So we might have somebody who doesn't necessarily have all the giftings we look to see, but that has the heart and the character that seeks after God. And we can say, let's, let's do some training and let's pray for God to bless you with some giftings. And this is how God sees things as well. When Samuel was instructed by God to appoint a new king over Israel, he had a bunch of brothers pass before him to see which one God would choose. Any one of them looked like they had the physical attributes and the gifts that they would need to qualify them for the role of king. But as soon as the first one stepped in front of him, God said, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature. I'm particularly keen on that sentence. (laughs) Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Seven qualified men stepped in front of Samuel and God rejected every one of them. Then David, the young shepherd boy, stepped in front of him and God said, this is the one. Anoint him. God reveals why. He says, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. This is the type of character that qualifies a person. It's a reflection of God's own character. Fallen and damaged, yes, but through the work of the Holy Spirit, being shaped and moulded to be more like Jesus day by day. When spiritual gifts and the roles and responsibilities connected to them are exercised, shaped and administered from a character that reflects God's own character and seeks to do his will, the whole church flourishes and God is rightly glorified amongst us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control and servant-heartedness. All of these overflow from a heart that desires to please God and are brought to maturity through the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's these key traits that really shape how a gift is used. Because the person operating those gifts is less concerned about how it impacts themselves and more concerned about how it brings glory to God and is used to bless others. So here at NLCC, we want to major on character. We know gifting is important, but we believe gifting is best expressed and administered through good character. So church, I want to encourage you that as we appoint people to new serving roles, we do that with a heart to bring glory to Jesus and we will seek to appoint individuals whose characters are shaped by hearts that desire to do the same. And by the grace of God and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we will release the right people with the right giftings into the right areas of our church to grow and move forward together. So please continue to pray for us as we seek to serve you and honour our glorious God through the beautiful church family he's made us responsible for. Let me remind you that we have two Wednesdays pencilled in on the 24th and the 31st of August at 7.30 till 9. Um, If you have any questions about what we've delivered over the last couple of weeks, the eldership team uh, will be at the branch at those times. And you can come in and informally have some chats with us, chew over stuff that you're 
thinking about, um, ask questions, whatever you want to do, we can have those conversations and we look forward to doing that. Okay, so can I have the worship team up, please? <clears throat> Thanks, guys. Can we stand together? Thank you. Again, like last week, you've had a huge amount of information. I'm sure your minds are either numb at this point or uh, else swimming with questions and observations. But I just want us to turn our hearts and minds to worship our Heavenly Father once more. I want us to give thanks for the beautiful church family we're a part of. I want us to give thanks for everything God's doing amongst us. I want us to praise him for calling us to be joined to him through the glorious bride of Christ, which is the church. Let's worship him, knowing that when Jesus comes again, we will be presented to him in holiness and perfection as his spotless bride. Joyful in the knowledge that we will spend eternity in the arms of the one who laid down his life for us because he loved us so much. I'm going to finish by reading Revelation 19, which is part of that picture of when the bride of Christ and Christ are joined. And I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Heavenly Father, as we turn our eyes, our hearts, our minds towards you again, help us to worship you in truth and in holiness as we consider the wonderful, manifold glory of your church, Lord, that you have claimed as your bride. Thank you, Lord, that that is our eternal destiny. That is the picture that we long for. And I thank you that you have secured that for us. So I pray, stir us even now, Lord, to worship you, to lay ourselves at your feet and to give you the glory that you deserve. Amen.